0: So very good to see you this morning. I love and appreciate you so very much. I, I want to make sure that um, we're on the same page, maybe uh, from your childhood or from your parenting, um, but see if you experience the same thing on one side or the other, probably on both. But when when as a parent or when your parents told you not to do something, like don't do that, or to do something, eventually the child is going to ask that Very simple one-word question, why, right? Yeah, see, we we all know, right? So if you tell a kid to do something or don't do that, they're eventually going to ask why. And then probably, probably the parent is going to eventually respond with the very simple answer, because I said so, right? Because I said so. Now, before I was a parent, before I had any children, back when I was a parenting expert, and then all of that went out the window when I actually became a parent. But before I was a parent, I, I, I swore I would never say because I said so. I, I swore. I'm never going to say that. I'm always going to explain, explain the answer to my children. Anytime they ask me why, I had no idea the inexhaustible number of times they could ask the question why. And, and we understand probably that you do begin by explaining why. This is why I want you to do this thing, or here's why I don't want you to do that thing. But the reason we eventually get to the point where we say, okay, fine, if none of that works because I said so, the reason we get to that usually is because our children don't understand the reason, or they don't agree with the reason because we're reasoning through something as a parent and we're saying this is important for this reason and then we're trying to communicate that with our children and they just don't see it or they don't get it or they don't understand it or if they do they just don't agree with us right I remember back and I've probably shared this with you before that one of my mom's rules I couldn't play with G.I. Joe's I was deprived as a child. My mom will be at second service, so don't tell her I told you this. But, but I couldn't, I couldn't play with, with GI Joes. And, and so because I didn't agree with her reason about that, I just went to my friend Billy's house and played with his GI Joes. But, but her reason that I didn't understand or agree with, in fact, I don't know that I really could have understand, understood it at the time was that she didn't want for me to think about war as a game. She didn't want me to trivialize matters of life and death. Of course, as a child, I couldn't wrap my head around that, I couldn't comprehend that, I couldn't understand that, and even if I could, I might not have agreed with her, but her reason why, even though at the time I rejected it, over the years, it has been formative for me. But as I thought about that this week, I thought, you know, there's so many similarities to what we do as Christians Because for many of us, our spirituality is something that we have trivialized. It's something we dabble with. It's something we play at. Are we playing at spirituality? Are we dressing up and pretending at spirituality? Have we trivialized spirituality? Matters of sin and righteousness, matters of life and death, this isn't a game but sometimes we treat it like it's a game. Sometimes we talk about it like it's a game. Sometimes we act like we're just going through the motions and we're just playing at it. See that's the difference a lot of times between maturity, adulthood, and childhood is because when we're children we don't understand how serious things are. But as we become adults, as we become mature, we realize the things that are matters of life and death. Things that are serious, things that we don't joke about, things that we don't play at, things that are sobering. And today I'm going to share a sobering story with you before. We we just read it. Maybe it's a story you haven't thought about before. Maybe it's one you've thought about a lot But it really should be a sobering story for all of us as we think about the church that we are and what it means to be part of the church, what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to be an unstoppable people, to embrace an unstoppable mission, to partner with Jesus in the world. And that's the way the, the early church, the church in Jerusalem started out and everything was going so great and it was so awesome. And believing in Jesus, being baptized into Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit was changing people. And it was changing people into little versions of Jesus. And we see this in, in the latter part of Acts chapter 2 and the latter part of Acts chapter 4. And people are giving of themselves for the good of the the church, right? They're they're making sure that there's not a needy person among them. There's not a person that goes hungry. There's not a person that goes homeless. There's not a person who goes naked. Everybody is clothed and fed and taken care of. Why? Because the Christians are being turned into little versions of Jesus where they are considering not just their own needs, but the, the common good. And they're giving of themselves freely, generously to take care of their brothers and sisters in Christ. And there's one man, Barnabas, that's his nickname. It means son of encouragement. He's held up as an example because he has this piece of land and he sells his land and he brings everything, all of the proceeds, and he lays them at the apostles' feet. Why? Because believing in Jesus has changed this man. And he's doing for his brothers and sisters what Jesus has done for him. Jesus has given everything for him and now he's giving everything for his brothers and sisters. And Barnabas is this example of what it looks like when Jesus transforms us. But then we see another example. Look at Acts chapter five and verse one. This is right on the heels of what Barnabas does. And Luke records in Acts five and verse one, he says, but a man named Ananias... With his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, we'll see as we go through the story that what, what it seems like is happening is that Ananias and Sapphira, his wife, they sold this piece of property and they're pretending like they're doing the same thing Barnabas did. They're pretending that they're bringing all of the proceeds and laying it at the apostles' feet. They're pretending that they're being as generous as others. They're pretending that they're being as sacrificial as others. They're pretending that they're being as righteous as others. But it's an act. In fact, this phrase, kept back for himself, it's a word that that means pilfered or embezzled or skimmed off the top. He's stealing. And that's what it is. When we pledge something to others, when we say, I'm going to give this to you, I'm going to be this kind of person, I'm going to share my life with you, I'm going to share my resources with you, and then we don't, it's lying and it's stealing. But really, what what Ananias is doing is the same thing so many religious people, including us probably, struggle with, and that's hypocrisy. Ananias teaches us that we become hypocrites when we're more concerned about how we are perceived than who we are becoming. Ananias and Sapphira were more concerned with how they were perceived by the church community than who they were becoming. And that can be a tempting thing, can't it? To be so caught up in and concerned with, do I seem spiritual? Do other people perceive me as being religious? Do other people see me as being sacrificial and righteous? Jesus warned about this very thing, didn't he? About practicing your righteousness to be seen by others, praying to be seen by others, putting on a show, that's what a hypocrite is. A hypocrite is an actor. A hypocrite is somebody who is more concerned with how they are perceived than who they really are. This story is a sobering story that helps us to realize that playing at spirituality is a dangerous thing to do. It's a dangerous thing to pretend to be someone that we're not. Jesus is incredibly merciful and gracious and all kinds of people who were hated and despised that the community looked at as sinners and outcasts. Jesus said, I want to have dinner with you. I want to sit at your table. I want you and I to share meal together. I want you to be my brothers and my sisters. I want you to be my family. I want to love you. I want to forgive you. But the people who were hypocrites, who were playing at spirituality, who were pretending to be spiritual when they really weren't, the people who were more concerned with how they were perceived than who they were becoming, those people, Jesus had the harshest words for those people. And again, we have to sort of look in the mirror, don't we? And ask ourselves, are we more concerned with how we are being perceived by others or who we are becoming? Are we becoming little versions of Jesus or are we just pretending at Christianity? Do we just want people to perceive us as spiritual, perceive us as sacrificial, perceive us as righteous, perceive us as Selfless and loving, or do we actually want to become those things? Jesus wants us to become those things, not to just put on a show about those things. He wants you to actually become selfless, become loving, become generous, become a person who's willing to give of self for the good of your brothers and sisters. Isn't that an interesting phrase that Peter begins with? Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? See, this is what's happened. Satan has filled the world with lies, and sometimes we believe those lies, and when we believe the lies of Satan, we become liars ourselves. And in this case, a lot of the time, Satan's lie sounds something like this. Satan's lie sounds like, if you want to live, you better look out for yourself. If you want to live, you better preserve your life. If you want to live, you better hold on to what's yours. If you want to live, you better look out for number one. If you want to live, you better take care of yourself. Don't be too generous. Hold on to what's yours so that you can live. And you say, well, that actually sounds kind of reasonable, right? Isn't that kind of how the world works? And Jesus says, no, 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 I've come to bring a new reality. If you want to live, take up your cross and follow me. If you want to live, you've got to die. The only way to live is to die. And you say, that's kind of paradoxical. But see, we become like the one we believe. We become like the one we believe. If you believe Satan, if you believe Satan, that if you want to live, you got to preserve your stuff. If you want to live, you got to preserve your life. If you want to live, you got to hold on to what's yours. If you want to live, you have to look out for number one. If you believe that, you will become like the one who tells that lie. But if you believe Jesus, if you believe Jesus that he's brought a new reality, that ever since the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God is here to stay, and if you want to live, the only way to live is to take up your cross and follow Jesus, to die in order to live, to die to self to despise all that we have and follow him and to say, it's all yours. My hands are yours. My feet are yours. My eyes are yours. My mouth is yours. My wealth is yours. My house is yours. My car is yours. It belongs to you, Lord. I belong to you. I'm a living sacrifice. Do with me as you will. Jesus says, that's the only way you can live. And if you believe that, if you believe Jesus, then you become like the one you believe. And Ananias became like Satan because he believed Satan's lies. Satan's lies are everywhere. Satan's lies are everything that this present evil age is built upon. And it's so tempting to believe his lies, to believe if you want to live, you got to look out for number one. And if you believe his lies, you become a liar like him. Now, notice Peter says to him, Wasn't the land your land? You could do with it whatever you wanted. And when you sold the land, the money that you got for selling it, it was yours. You could do with that money whatever you wanted to do. But instead, you decided to lie about it. See, that's the thing. Nobody's forcing you to follow Jesus. Nobody's forcing you to follow Jesus. Nobody's forcing you to say, I've taken up my cross, I'm following him. Nobody's forcing you to get into the baptistry and... Die to yourself, die to the present evil age, and be resurrected and walk with Jesus and follow Jesus and live this, what is admittedly, a radically different lifestyle. Nobody's forcing you to do that. It's your body, it's your money, it's your car, it's your house, it's your wealth, it's your eyes, it's your hands, it's your feet. Do with them what you choose to do with them. But what you do with them will be determined by what you believe. And what you believe will be determined by who you believe. Do you believe that Jesus has the words of eternal life? Do you believe that he is the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through him? If you do, if you believe that, then you become like Jesus. You say, what good is all of this? But I'm going to give it all to him. I'm going to live for him. My hands and my feet and my eyes, my wealth and my family and my life, it all belongs to Jesus. And I'm going to take up my cross and follow Jesus. If you believe Jesus, you become like a little version of Jesus. If you believe Satan, you will eventually become a liar like Satan. It's our choice who to believe. Who will fill our hearts? Ananias' heart was filled by Satan because he chose to believe Satan's lies. And because he chose to believe Satan's lies, he became a liar like Satan. Now, the most sobering part, verse 5. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young man rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. So I think sometimes we overemphasize stories like this as if God is just waiting to strike people dead. These kinds of stories are relatively rare in the Bible. God strikes very few people dead. God wants everybody to live, not just for 60 or 70 or 80 years. God wants everybody to live forever. But occasionally, God takes someone's life. And and there's some similarities between the times where we read stories like this. One of the stories you may be familiar with is from the book of Leviticus, Nadab and Abihu. And they were sons of Aaron, which means that they were priests. And they were struck dead by God because they didn't treat God as holy. Here's what God said about their sin. He says, Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. To treat God as holy means to treat God in a way that's not common. There's there's the common way of doing things, the average, ordinary way of doing things, and then there's the holy way of doing things. We treat God differently. We don't treat God like he's our buddy. We don't treat God like he's like everyone else because God is unlike everyone else. We treat God as holy. We bow before him. We're in awe before him. And these priests acted like and treated God as if he was common. And because they treated him as if he was common, they offered unusual or strange or unauthorized fire before the Lord because they treated him as if he wasn't holy. And then there's a story about a man named Uzzah. And Uzzah's family had had the ark of the covenant in their home for two decades. And then the ark of the covenant was being transferred back to Jerusalem and it was on a cart and that's not how it was supposed to be transported. See, they were transporting it as if it was just any other box. As if it was a common box. And then when it started to fall because the ox stumbled and the the Ark started to fall. Uzzah reached up and touched it as if it was just a common box. You see, Ananias and Sapphira, they were priests too. They were serving a holy God. But they acted like God wasn't holy. They acted like they could lie to God and God wouldn't see it. They acted like they could pretend with God and God wouldn't know. They lied to God and they lied to the Holy Spirit. And see, the reaction from the church, this is exactly the reaction we're supposed to have to this story. Great fear. See, that's what we're supposed to have when we read stories like Uzzah or Nadab and Abihu or Ananias and Sapphira, Sapphira, is that we can either serve God fearfully or flippantly. See, this this is what it is to be the spirit-filled community of God. God put his spirit amongst us and said, now now, my temple is not a building made with bricks and stones. Now my temple is made of human beings. You are my temple. My spirit is going to dwell in you. You are a royal priesthood. Men and women, Jews and Gentiles, Levites and people from every tribe, everybody that is in Christ Jesus gets to be a part of this royal priesthood and serve God by offering up our entire body as a living sacrifice to God. You are a royal priest. If you're a Christian, you are a priest. Not just on Sunday, not just on Wednesday night, but you're a priest on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday. You are serving God. Your life is religious work. And God expects us to serve Him fearfully. Not like I'm scared God's going to suddenly strike me dead. But fearfully, knowing that God is awesome and God is holy And we can't serve God flippantly. We can't play at this. We can't pretend at this. This is a matter of life and death. This is everything. And so often it's easy to show up on Sunday and just kind of go through the motions and then just go about our week doing like everybody else does. Do we do we really believe that God is a holy God? Do we really believe that his Holy Spirit lives in us? Do we really believe that we are the temple of the living God? Do we believe that we are a royal priesthood? Do we believe that we have been inducted, we have been adopted into God's family to serve in the world as a royal priesthood? I mean, that's the kind of reality and truth that should make our Our knees knock together and bow before him and say, who am I? Who am I that you let me be part of something like this? This is an awesome thing. This is an awesome thing. To serve God fearfully is to serve God with awe and with reverence To not try to lie to God, and not try to pretend with God, and not try to dabble in spirituality or dabble in Christianity, but to give our whole self to him, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Verse 7, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. I don't revel in stories like this. Stories like this are hard to preach. But they're important. Because they make me ask and they make you ask, How do I react when someone confronts me about my sin? And that's what Peter's doing, isn't it? Peter is confronting Sapphira about her sin. He gives her the opportunity. He says, Is this really, is this really the amount of money that you sold your land for? When you sold your land, is this really what you got for it? And there's a perfect opportunity to say, No, no, my husband and I, we agreed to lie about it, but it's not true. We were lying. It's not true. I repent. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that. And just think, just think what could have been had she responded with repentance to the question when she was confronted with her sin. But not just Sapphira, Wes, and you, how do you respond when someone confronts you about your sin? Do you say, That's none of your business? That's between me and God. Do you get offended? Or do you get grateful? We should be incredibly grateful when somebody is courageous enough to say, Wes, I'm worried about you. Brother, I'm worried about you. Sister, I'm worried about you. I see this going on in your life. Is this going on in your life? Is this what's happening here? And somebody gives us the opportunity to respond in repentance. God is incredibly merciful What more does he have to do to show his mercy and his grace and his love and his desire to forgive us? And when someone confronts us about our sin, it's an opportunity to say, I'm sorry. I Sin. I don't want to live that way. I don't want to continue on that path. But, of course, Sapphira continued with the lie. And it says in verse 10, Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. I found it interesting that this was the first time in Luke's writing. So if you start at the beginning of the book of Luke and you read all the way through Luke and you start into the book of Acts, this is the first time you'll come upon the word church. This is the first story that Luke mentions the word church. It's a a fearful thing. It's an awesome thing. It's an awesome thing that ought to make our palms sweat and our knees knock together to be a part of the church. But so often we talk about being part of the church in such a flippant way, as if it's something you could choose to do or choose not to do or kind of do occasionally or do when you want to do. But Jesus says, my church, my church, My church is where the spirit of God is going to dwell. My church, my gathering, my assembly, my people are going to be the people that are the royal priesthood, the people who are gonna bring the kingdom of God into the world. And nobody is forced to be part of the church. Nobody's forced to follow Jesus. Nobody can make that decision for you. You've gotta make that decision for yourself. It's your land, it's your money, It's your life, it's your body, it's your choice who you're gonna believe, where you're gonna go, who your people gonna be. But if you're gonna say, if you're gonna say, I believe Jesus and I wanna follow him, then you have to do so soberly and aware of what an awesome thing it is. So here are some questions that we could ask based on this sobering story. Here's some questions that might help us to ask and sort of probe around and say, am I playing at spirituality? Am I playing at Christianity? Or am I taking this seriously? Number one, are you more concerned with how you are perceived or who you are becoming? Of course, none of us are there yet. None of us have arrived. Jesus doesn't expect you to be perfect But he does expect you to be becoming something, to be becoming someone in Christ, to be becoming someone through the Spirit, to be offering your body and your life and your mind to him, to be becoming transformed, to be becoming a little, a little version of Jesus. And we know. I don't know whether you're pretending or not, but I know whether I'm pretending or not, and you know whether you're pretending or not, or whether you're more concerned about how you are perceived or who you are becoming. Second question is, if you are becoming like the one you believe, what does your life say about your faith? You are becoming like the one you believe. If you believe the lies of Satan, then you're becoming like him if you believe the truth of Jesus, then you are becoming like him. As we've asked before, what are you doing in your life that only makes sense in light of the resurrection of Jesus? What are you doing in your life that only makes sense if the gospel is true? So often we sort of hedge And we say, well, you know, I I want to do this, and and, yeah, I also believe in God, and yes, I also believe in Jesus, and I've gotten baptized, kind of make sure that that's all taken care of, and we're sort of making sure that no matter what's true, we're sort of taking care of all of it and, and covering our bases, but that's not the way Christianity works. That's not the way it works to be a disciple of Jesus. To be a disciple of Jesus says, I believe this is true. I believe Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And I'm going to give my whole self to him because I know that he is truth. And so what is happening in our life that only makes sense in light of the gospel? The people that don't believe the gospel say, that doesn't doesn't make sense. Why are you living like that? Why are you being that generous? Why are you being that selfless? Why are you being that sacrificial? If you are becoming like the one you believe, what does your life say about your faith? Number three, are you serving God fearfully or flippantly? Again, that doesn't mean that we live with this expectation or idea that God wants us dead. God doesn't want you dead. God wants you alive. God wants you alive so much that he gave his only begotten son, That whoever would believe in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. God wants you to live. But even that truth, that the holy God who created the universe loves you and wants his spirit to dwell in you and wants you to be part of what he's doing in the world, that ought to make our palms sweat and our knees knock together. It's not something we can play at. It's not something we can treat flippantly. It's not something we can dabble in. And finally, when someone confronts you about sin, how do you respond? None of us are are there yet. None of us are where we want to be or probably even where we need to be. But who are we becoming? And who we're becoming and who we want to be And whether we're just concerned about how we're perceived or whether we're really concerned about who we are becoming, a lot of it comes down to how do you respond when someone calls you out? How do you respond when someone asks you, how are you doing spiritually? Are we as a people, as the church, are we so concerned about sin? And taking this seriously and being the people that we're called to be, that we're willing to ask people, how are you doing? How are you doing? I miss you. I'm concerned about you. I love you. What's happening in your life? This is what an unstoppable church looks like. An unstoppable church takes sin seriously. An unstoppable church takes righteousness seriously. An unstoppable church doesn't play at or dabble in spirituality, but offers our whole self to the Lord. Again, it doesn't mean that we're perfect. It means that we're responding constantly to God, responding in fear, in reverence, in awe, and in repentance. God wants you to live, And whether or not you live depends on what you believe and what you do with your beliefs. It begins at baptism. And maybe there's somebody here this morning and you're ready to be baptized into Jesus. Again, nobody's twisting your arm. That's a decision no one should enter into lightly, but should only enter into soberly to say, I believe. I believe Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. I believe that he's the son of God and I want to give my whole self to him. But then it's a daily decision after that where we're constantly responding to Jesus, constantly examining ourselves, asking whether or not we're taking this seriously and living this out, whether or not we're serving God fearfully or flippantly. And something we need each other with We need each other to hold us accountable, to encourage us, to admonish us, to warn us, to say, wake up, stop playing at this, stop pretending, stop dabbling in it, and immerse yourself in Jesus. Be filled with the Spirit of God. We need each other, and if we can help you this morning, if we can pray for you, if we can encourage you, we are in this journey together, and we're here for you, and now's a great opportunity to respond. Let's together, we stand and sing.